Welcome to Zoe Science and Nutrition, where world-leading scientists explain how their research can improve your health. Kanchan Koya grew up in a house filled with wonderful fragrances from the spices simmering on her grandmother's stove. In India, it was a common belief that spices were more than just pleasant tastes. Ancient wisdom said they had medicinal properties, and it was common for household medicine cabinets to store dried spices and not pills. Kanchan grew up to become a molecular biologist studying in the US at Harvard Medical School. When her lab began to investigate turmeric's healing properties, the ancient wisdom from her childhood met the scientific inquiry of her adult life, beginning a lifelong obsession with the health benefits of spice. On today's show, she helps us understand whether there is any scientific evidence to support the health benefits of spices, the easiest way to add spice to our diet and which ones to choose. We're also joined by regular guest Tim Spector, one of the world's top 100 most cited scientists and my scientific co-founder at Zoe, to help understand why spices might be improving our health. Kanchan and Tim, thank you for joining me today. Why don't we start with our usual quick fire round of questions from our listeners and start with Kanchan. Kanchan, are there spices that I can eat to improve my health? Yes. Should I be giving spices to my children? Yes. Is there any evidence that spices can help with menopause? I am not sure. Brilliant. We'll come back to all of those a bit later. And Tim, can spices reduce inflammation? Yes. Do spices affect my gut microbiome? Yes, definitely. Can spices count towards my target of 30 plants a week? Yes, they absolutely can. All right, that's a lot more yeses than normal, <laughs> but I think everyone's like, wow, that, this stuff actually does something. And uh, let's go and sort of dig into that all in a bit more detail. And maybe we could just start right at the beginning, Kanchan. Like, what is a spice? Right, fantastic question. So I'm actually going to summarize from a research paper because I knew that question was going to come up in the International Journal of Molecular Sciences, which basically says that the leaf, root, bark, berry, bud, seed, stigma of a plant or flower used for purposes of cooking are commonly referred to as herbs and spices. So that's the formal sort of scientific definition of an herb or a spice. Got it. And I think spinach is a leaf, isn't it? But I don't think my wife would accept that I was adding spices if I added spinach to my meal. So I guess in day-to-day -day usage, is there anything um, that like would identify, you know, when you're cooking, what just defines that as or a spice? Or maybe separating a herb and a spice. That's the other. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So when I think of spices versus herbs, I really do think of the root, the bark, the bud, the seed. And then when you start talking about the leaves, I think more of herbs, either fresh or dried. And so when you think of spices, the difference between them and other sort of plant foods that we eat on a regular basis are really that they're often quite concentrated and traditionally have been used to enhance the flavor of food. And of course, in some ancient medical systems, also to enhance the health properties of food. So that's that's kind of how I would think about spices versus, you know, other foods that we eat. And somehow they always seem quite concentrated when I think about spices, right? They're in a small little jar as opposed to the quantities of food I tend to eat for anything else to give me, me flavor. Is that sort of universal across spices? 
Yes, they do tend to be concentrated, used in smaller amounts. And I think it's a really good point because for a lot of people that brings up the question, well, if they're used in such small culinary amounts, how can they possibly really have benefits of meaning versus, you know, eating a giant plate of sort of leafy greens or a huge plate of steamed broccoli? You do have to wonder, would a sprinkling of this or that spice really make a difference? And I guess that's what we're going to talk about today. I think that is exactly the question. And maybe I'd love to do it a little bit through your own story, because we talked before this call about your own passion for spices and how it it began. Like, how have you ended up with your whole focus on spice? Yeah, so I grew up in India for the first 18 years of my life. As several listeners might know, India is obsessed with spice. The spice box or the daba, it's called in India, is really an integral part of every Indian household's kitchen. But it's also an integral part of every Indian family's sort of pharmacy. And by pharmacy, I mean the F-A-R-M pharmacy, sort of natural medicinal foods that we eat. The ancient Indian medical system of Ayurveda has really revered spices and really put a lot of weight on their potential health benefits. So I grew up with a lot of that ancient wisdom just sort of passed down by my family, my grandma, that sort of thing. And then I, to be honest, didn't think much of it. In fact, I thought it was a bunch of maybe woo-woo, not really valid. I was sort of a scientist. I wanted to do serious science. So I came to the U.S. to study. I found myself at Harvard Medical School doing my PhD in molecular cancer biology. And my lab at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute actually started to study various polyphenols and plant-based compounds in a screen against breast cancer in vitro, in cells. And one of the compounds in the screen was curcumin. And I was collaborating on this project with a postdoc. And he said, oh, look, there's, you know, turmeric is one of the compounds in the screen or curcumin, the bioactive from turmeric. And it was definitely a real aha moment for me because I think I had sort of discounted or not really paid attention to a lot of this wisdom that I grew up with. And here I was at a research institution that was starting to look at some of these polyphenols found in spices. And it just sort of, you know, planted a seed for me that maybe there is something to these ancient components in food that is now being validated by modern science. And then fast forward to sort of when I became a mother and started to give my son spices in his baby food. And I had a lot of questions from my other mommy friends here in New York City as to whether that was even legal or allowed. And it just got the wheels turning in my mind about how maybe I could educate people about spices and really as a gateway into this world of food for health and food for sort of micronutrient enhancement. And that led to the platform that is now Spice Spice Baby. That's amazing. And so what do we know about how spices affect our health? Right. That's the million dollar question. So You know, for a long time, we had a lot of evidence, mostly in vitro, sometimes dubious, not in the best journals, looking at the properties of these polyphenols or phytochemicals found in spices. So these are individual compounds that have been studied in different spices, and they're often looked at for their properties in a test tube, on cells, their antioxidant capacities. There was a growing body of evidence that spices contained these compounds. These compounds seem to have benefits in vitro. And then there were small studies here and there, not the best sort of done, not the largest sample sizes that was starting to show some benefits like ability to regulate blood sugar in the case of cinnamon or, you know, some other anti-inflammatory spices like turmeric, their ability to 
block inflammation or at least reduce or regulate inflammation. And for a long time, I just told people, you know, we have so much growing evidence in vitro that these things can be helpful. There's really no downside to using them. We're waiting for more human kind of control, randomized control data. So in the meanwhile, let's just enjoy them because they make our food really delicious and there's really no downside and there might be a health benefit. But I will say in the last few years, we have started to see some better studies in humans that have given me a lot more sort of optimism about the true benefit of these components in culinary amounts. So very often the studies in the past looked at very concentrated doses of spices and things that would be hard to achieve in culinary amounts. And now we have studies saying, you know what, a teaspoon of a spice blend in sort of a junky, high fat, high refined carbohydrate meal may actually be able to regulate inflammation after that meal. And we can get into some of these studies, but I think now we're really starting to see more evidence that in addition to the in vitro characteristics of these polyphenols, there might actually be real benefits in culinary amounts. And Tim, you're normally the first to be skeptical about a pervading view of food, so on spices. When you look at the studies in general, you do see lots of papers. You're getting multiple papers from countries like Iran or Pakistan or places that aren't really high up in the Western view of science that are looking after their own spices and perhaps paid by the government to write these papers that are down 20 or 30 people that wouldn't normally meet the quality you'd find in the top journals. So it is hard to assess these. They're often paid by the manufacturers, just like happens in other areas of food, like you know giant nut conglomerates, et cetera, doing the same thing. So I think we do have to be skeptical about the actual literature, but as Kanchin says, you know, we've got good theoretical reasons to believe it. And what we do lack is really rigorous studies in large numbers of people. So we do need a sort of leap of faith to go from the fact that these spices and herbs are, are actually packed with the things that we know are good for our bodies from other experiments and take the few good studies that we have got and, and extrapolate it. So we should maybe look at some of these claims, some of the more extreme claims that, you know, for example, I was, you know, I took this turmeric powder and was completely cured of cancer with a very large pinch of spices. But at the same time, realize that, you know, these things might have a place in helping all these things along. And that perhaps the middle ground between the extreme claims and, and they don't work at all is where I think most food experts are seeing this. And Luckily, the last few years, we have seen more rigorous studies in a few of these areas. And I think the fact that we can now start to measure things like the gut microbiome effects gives us a way of looking in short term in practical ways of doing these studies rather than waiting for people to impossible studies to do, you know, waiting to get cancer or heart disease or whatever, and taking spices or not, which would take an impossible length of time. So we're moving in that direction. And there's a few examples that I'm sure Catch and I can come to discuss that will highlight that. And I'll just add one thing um, along the lines of what Tim was saying. You know, I think many people look to spices or other sort of superfoods um, as these magic bullet solutions for health problems. And I think if you step back and look at the data 
from sort of a larger lens. It really is about certain dietary patterns. And I think this emerges for any health food. So it's not about, you know, overloading on turmeric for inflammation control. It's about following a dietary pattern that we know in an evidence-based way is going to support healthy inflammation and then incorporating a polyphenol-rich spice like turmeric. I really see that as the approach versus the sort of like, what should I take every day in copious amounts to solve my problem. And I think there's when the dubious claims really start to come in. So Ketchup, will you tell us a bit about the latest science? Because it sounds like there have been some really interesting papers just in the last few years that have really lifted above what's been there in the past. And I think it would be without scaring us away with too much of the science, like what has that actually been telling us? Yeah. So for a long time, we had a lot of evidence, as I was saying, that spices contain these anti-inflammatory compounds that seem to affect different players in inflammation. So inflammation is a really complex kind of molecular symphony cascade in the body with lots of different players. And the cool thing is the different components in different spices, at least in vitro, seem to be hitting different components in inflammation. So potentially having a synergistic effect working together. And a team at Penn State University just last year actually said, hey, since most people don't eat a single spice in isolation, especially in cultures that have traditionally used spices, they're often used as spice blends. And given we know that different spices have different compounds that might work in concert, why don't we make a blend and test it in humans to see what it does to markers of inflammation? So this was a blend. And this is, you know, to Tim's point about this kind of reductionist view versus a more holistic view. The blend contained, I'm going to list the spices really quickly, just to give you a sense of how many spices were in the blend. They were obviously trying to create a research study that was likely going to give them some results. And so the blend had turmeric, ginger, cinnamon, coriander, cumin, red pepper, black pepper, thyme, oregano, parsley, basil, rosemary, bay leaf, ginger, and cinnamon. I'm getting hungry just listening to you (laughs) list the ingredients, which doesn't normally happen when people discuss clinical studies with me. So this is more fun than normal. (laughs) Right. And so what they found is when they took this blend and they added it to sort of a junky, modern, standard American diet meal, it happened to be a refined carbohydrate and saturated fat laden hamburger. (laughs) Maybe it was McDonald's. I'm not sure. No, we don't want to throw McDonald's under the bus, but whatever. It was some kind of junky meal. And they either exposed subjects to the meal alone, the meal with about half a teaspoon of the spice blend, and then with a teaspoon of the spice blend. And they found that a teaspoon of the spice blend in the meal, which again is very doable, being someone who cooks with spices, to add a teaspoon of a spice blend to a burger, for example, is very doable and something you would do as a cook actually resulted in reduction in several biomarkers of inflammation right after the meal. And so that to me was really exciting because it shows that spices and culinary amounts might have positive effects. It shows that, again, the blends are really powerful. And it makes sense if you think about the mechanism of action of the different components in the spices and how they work in synergy. So for me, that was one of the more compelling sets of evidence to suggest that maybe spices have benefits in real time, in our bodies, in culinary formats. The second study, which I know Tim knows, is the one that came out in Scientific Report a couple of years ago, or maybe even last year, looking at the effects of, again, a spice blend. It was an Indian curry blend on changes in the gut microbiome. 
and they found essentially shifts in the microbiome even after a single meal with the spice blend. And it seemed to be that people who didn't routinely have spices had a more pronounced sort of effect or positive change in the gut microbiota. So I think that they're really two key studies that we really didn't have available to us until this year. And so it's moving the whole area on to a new level, which I think is really exciting that people are taking this seriously. They're getting the big grants to do it and getting these papers written and out there. And I think the link with the microbiome is really crucial because if you treat the microbiome like a new organ, it shows how these spices can actually affect our bodies that has lots of long-term health consequences rather than just short-term. Because a lot of the inflammation markers are just short-term, but if you combine both of them, then you can really see a big effect. And in the Zoe Predict studies, when we looked at foods, microbes, and health outcomes in the Nature Medicine paper, it was buried in that paper, which was so massive, it was hard to find anything. We did see that uh, if you took chilies, it did reduce inflammatory bugs. It was associated with a reduced inflammatory bugs. People who regularly had chilies had less proteobacteria, the inflammatory ones, and they increased acamansia, which some people might have heard about because we talk about it a lot. It's a bug that's associated with good health and generally good metabolism and, and weight loss. And that's both in mice and in our studies. So I think everyone listening to this is right. Okay, I'm sold. Like I need more spice in my diet. So they're like, okay, but which, right? There are thousands of spices that you could find. Well, let's say we're just stepping into this. What spices should we be looking to add? Where is it that there's real evidence? What should be our initial sort of shortlist, Kanchan? Yeah, I get this question all the time. And it's kind of hard to choose based on that list that I sort of read off, you know, with all the spices in the blend, the researchers commented that they don't yet understand which spices in the blend are more or less responsible for the positive effects on inflammation. So sort of hard to choose, but I have come up with a list of five spices that I think every sort of spice beginner could begin to embrace in their kitchen and then build from there. I'm taking notes right now. <laughs> All right. So number one would be turmeric. There is such a large body of evidence around the health benefits of curcumin, which is the main studied bioactive in turmeric. There are other bioactives in turmeric. So for people who just want to go straight to the curcumin supplement, I still recommend using the whole spice and getting that whole sort of food matrix effect because you're getting all of the polyphenols and things we haven't yet identified. That's true for all spices, really, isn't it? Yes, go, absolutely. Go for the whole one because there might be a hundred others that are doing even better job that we haven't studied. Yes, use the whole spice instead of running to the supplement store to get the concentrated version. There's a room for supplements. Check with your physician in certain situations. It might be helpful. But when using it in culinary sort of settings for overall healthy dietary pattern, the whole spice wins. When using turmeric, it's really important to pair it with black pepper. So one of the limitations around turmeric's benefits is the poor bioavailability of the curcumin. It's cleared pretty rapidly by the liver, and it appears that piperin, which is another polyphenol found in black pepper, can slow down that clearance. And it turns out you don't need that much pepper. So for people who are like, oh, but I make my golden milk and I don't really want black pepper in my turmeric latte, you literally need a very small amount. A pinch will sort of do the trick. So 
turmeric and black pepper would be the first two just because they go hand in hand and pepper has benefits too in and of itself it has anti-inflammatory compounds it has some at least in vitro some cancer fighting properties and that sort of thing the third one would be cinnamon so it's been pretty heavily studied for its ability to balance blood sugar there are several small but you know interesting research studies looking at the ability of cinnamon to reduce blood glucose levels to regulate a1c which is another marker of insulin sensitivity even ldl cholesterols particularly in people with diabetes the results are mixed we need larger more sort of convincing data but and presumably not if it's wrapped in a cinnamon roll i'm thinking like most of the things <laughs> i associate cinnamon with to be honest i feel are probably not very good for blood sugar control so we i sort of need to rethink the set of foods that i would associate this with right there's probably no cinnamon in those. It's all artificial <laughs> flavoring, I imagine. Tim, you're always depressing me with these facts. <laughs> but you bring up an interesting point because there is one cool study that looked at the addition of a teaspoon of cinnamon to rice pudding, which isn't maybe the healthiest food because it's you know laden with refined sugar and all that. And it did seem to reduce the blood sugar spike when the rice pudding was laced with a teaspoon of cinnamon. So if you are going to indulge in the cinnamon roll, maybe it's worth actually putting real cinnamon on top. <laughs> but you have some recipes for me that don't push me towards uh, sort of these sorts of cakes and desserts with cinnamon. Absolutely. I mean, I think cinnamon is unfortunately associated with desserts and like holiday treats, and that's great. But it's also used in many traditional cuisines and savory dishes. You can put it in things like chili or a lentil or regular bolognese. It goes into garam masala, which is iconic Indian blend used in curry. So don't just save it for the desserts and sweet treats. So it's much more versatile. And it's actually in things, it's interesting, a bunch of things I didn't realize that you just mentioned that I eat. So I can do that without having to yank up the cinnamon roll. That's good to know. Although I would have quite liked an excuse, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure many people would. It also seems like about half a teaspoon to a teaspoon a day is kind of what is thought to be optimal for balanced blood sugar. It's important to note that there are two kinds of cinnamon. So the one that you find regularly at your regular grocery store is called cassia cinnamon. And then there's a special variety called true cinnamon or Ceylon cinnamon, which comes from the island country Ceylon or Sri Lanka. And the reason I bring this up is because if you are someone who's really embracing cinnamon in large amounts in your smoothies and oatmeal or whatever, it might be worth going out of your way to find the true cinnamon varietal because cassia cinnamon has coumarin, which at large enough doses might have some liver toxicity effects. So I always tell people, if you are going to go all out and kind of really incorporate cinnamon into your life, go out of your way, find true cinnamon. You can get it online. It has little to no levels of coumarin, so it shouldn't be an issue, even if you consume sort of a teaspoon a day. So that's three. <laughs> don't think the cinnamon will balance out the smoothie, which is one of the meals that we see has the worst blood sugar control across, you know, now 30,000 people. So as always, I guess you have to be very thoughtful about you're looking for other alternatives, aren't you? Aren't you? Jonathan? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so cinnamon is fantastic. What else is in your five? So in my, my fourth one is sumac. And that's because I grew up around spices, but sumac was not one of them. And I wish it was. It's probably my favorite spice. So I'm a little bit biased. It also comes from the Middle East. It grows on this bush and it has this beautiful 
purple hue. And as we know, the color purple in the plant kingdom signifies these anthocyanins, which are really wonderful, again, phytochemicals that have anti-inflammatory, cardiovascular protective effects. It's also incredibly versatile to use. If you've ever been to a Middle Eastern restaurant and found your hummus with this purple kind of powder or your baba ganoush, that's sumac. It's very easy to sprinkle on things, um, whether it's your salads, whether it's your scrambled eggs, your avocado toast. So for the versatility and the anthocyanins, it makes my top five list. And then number five, I'm going to throw in probably one of my all-time favorites, which is ginger. And I know this kind of blurs that line between, you know, a spice, an herb, a root, an aromatic, but ginger can be used as the fresh root. It can also be ground down into dry ginger powder. And there's a huge body of evidence growing around ginger's benefits, whether it's inflammation management, digestion. It seems to really help with sluggish digestion. So it helps to move food along the GI tract. It also can help with nausea, especially in pregnancy. Always check with your doctor, obviously, but it has been shown in small studies to relieve symptoms of nausea. It may even help with sort of metabolic health and blood sugar balance. And it's just so easy to use, you know, great ginger into your curry, grate it onto your salad, make a tea. It's very versatile, very easy to use. So those would be my top five, but obviously I could keep going because there's a whole bunch that people should also explore. Don't stop at the five, but that's a good starting point. Talk to us a bit about doing this. So imagine there'll be listeners here who are super comfortable. They're using loads of spices and they're like, oh, that's great. But there'll be people here for whom this all just feels foreign to them and they don't really know how to approach this. They might be thinking like, right, I really want to do this, but how do I actually bring this into my dietary pattern, the way I'm cooking, if I'm a complete beginner? Yes. The number one piece of advice I give people is don't try to change your diet to accommodate spices. Add spices to your existing foods. That's the best place to start. So very often people get intimidated because they think, oh, if I have to use spices now, I suddenly have to start cooking all this food I don't really know how to make. I need to go buy cookbooks around Thai food or Indian food or Mexican food or whatever. You can take your daily favorites, your sort of global daily favorites. I'm just going to throw three examples, oatmeal, avocado toast, and maybe, I don't know, what's the third popular breakfast? Like some sort of like eggs, you know, with green Bagels and cream cheese. Bagels and cream cheese. <laughs> Yogurt and berries. <laughs> yeah, yogurt and berries, exactly. And, you know, how can you add some of the spices I mentioned or some other spices to those things? So, you know, oatmeal, add some cinnamon. You can add a little sprinkling of cardamom and a little ginger. And now you have something that's really flavorful and you're incorporating some of these polyphenols in a simple way. Avocado toast. I mean, there's loads of things I do to my avocado toast, but you could sprinkle it with a little cumin and coriander and chili and a little lime juice to give it a bit of like sort of a Mexican nacho flair. You could put some sesame seeds and black onion seeds or little fennel seed. I mean, avocado toast is the perfect canvas to play around with your spice box. And then fruit and yogurt, again, you know, you could shave a little nutmeg. You could do the cardamom cinnamon again, a little bit of ginger. Clove is really nice in the winter months because it's warming. And actually, of all the spices, might have the highest polyphenolic content per sort of gram. So, um, And it's an anesthetic as well, isn't it? So, right. People so, suck on it for toothaches. Exactly. And trials actually show that works, Jonathan. So it's not just an old myth. They've done proper trials. That's amazing. So you need a lot of clove to uh, protect yourself from the cold winter, I guess. But uh, it's better than, oh, better than nothing. <laughs> 
Right. So I think the theme is take your daily favorite foods and start adding spices to those in simple ways. And then you can get adventurous if you like and start cooking, you know, foods from cuisines maybe you're less familiar with that are more spice heavy. And the second thing I'll say, because I get this all the time, is people say, I want to use spices, but I don't like hot food. And I think this is the biggest sort of myth that all spices are spicy. You can have spice forward foods that aren't hot at all. So it's the chili peppers, maybe the black pepper for people who are really sensitive that would confer that sort of heat element that can be uncomfortable. But if you think of all the spices we've talked about, they are aromatic, flavorful, fragrant, they are spice forward, but they're not hot. So don't assume that all spices are spicy and therefore you have to stay away from them. Quite a few of them also sounded like work. You know, you were talking about, <laughs> I've got to shave this thing on top of my yogurt. And we all know that we're very busy in the morning and and probably many people listening to this podcast have already been trying to figure out how to improve their breakfast to get somewhere healthier. Like if I want to get the best health benefits here and I'm trying to find like the balance of effort, are there sort of hacks to make this easier for us? Right. So definitely sprinkling an already ground spice onto your avocado toast is a great starting point and you're still getting those polyphenols. So don't make it overly complicated if that's going to be a hurdle. But you raise a really good point because we do have studies that show that how you cook with the spice can impact the health benefits. So turmeric and curcumin seem to be really activated when you expose them to heat, which is why if you watch traditional cultures cooking with turmeric, they often add the turmeric to a fat source like ghee or oil, and they let the spice sort of bloom in the fat for 30 to 60 seconds. That seems to enhance the bioavailability of the curcumin and wake it up. And then they will add their vegetables to that or their lentils or beans or then drizzle that turmeric oil over something. So if that's sounding like a lot of work, <laughs> you know, it, it might be. Well, at least it's now dinner, right? So I guess dinner is normally somewhere you might be willing to but put But as a more... general rule, I mean, there are exceptions. People often by mistake add the spices at the end of the cooking rather than right at the beginning. And I think that's for those very reasons not only improves the taste, but also the health properties. And I think that, that people should learn that. That's amazing. So this is real, like the timing at which you would add these ingredients really changes the health impact. Yeah. Yep. So there's evidence that exposing a lot of these polyphenols to fat and heat is beneficial, which is again, how a lot of traditional cultures cook with these spices. They layer them into the dish during the cooking process. Sometimes people will finish the dish with the same spice. And if you talk to chefs, they'll say, oh, it's a nice way to kind of reinforce the flavor and get a slightly different nuanced aspect of flavor. But I think there's actually a cool scientific reason to do that, which is it seems like some of these beneficial compounds are enhanced with heat and fat, and some of the antioxidants may actually be reduced with heat. So when you're layering your dish, cooking with the spice, but also finishing with, say, a dusting of chili pepper or cumin or chili flakes, you know, which is really common and easy to do, you're getting access to sort of everything the spice has to offer, some of which is activated by heat and some of which may be diminished by heat. And so, again, just going back to sort of the ancient wisdom, like we just, people intuitively did that through cooking, maybe because they thought it tasted good, but there actually might be health benefits to sort of cooking that way with the spices. Final topic I'd love to cover before we wrap up is a sort of about sort of 
quality of spices and how to store them because we had lots of questions about this as well and i think one of my big takeaways here is you know ideally you would just sort of have this prepared and then you could find it so easy to add to your breakfast and your lunch or your dinner on the other hand it feels like well if it's pre-prepared am i losing all of these special qualities and basically do i need to have that very fresh turmeric or the fresh powder what does the science say kanchan and, and what's your view on this so we've talked so much about why spices are beneficial and how it comes down to these polyphenols, which I like to think of like compounds that are really alive. They interact with the elements, with air, with heat, with light. So where you get your spice from and how you store it does matter. I think for people who've never used spices, if all they can do after listening to this is go to their regular grocery store, pick up a few of the spices we've mentioned and start adding them to food, that's a great sort of starting point, they're winning. I don't want to overcomplicate it for people. But it is true that when you get your spice at a conventional grocery store, it's been about two years for the most part between when that spice was harvested and making it to the shelf. Two years. It's quite, that's quite depressing. <laughs> yes. But just like, you know, artisanal olive oil or coffee, there is a lot of innovation happening in the spice space. And there are small companies and entrepreneurs who are saying, these spices are so incredible, even just from a culinary perspective, we want to preserve their magic. So they're going directly to these single origin farms, sourcing the spice, not treating them heavily, not irradiating them heavily, and then bringing them much more quickly to market. You can search single origin spices. I feel like the spice trade is really going through a revolution just like coffee did. And there's great spices out there you can get online. And if this has been two years before I can find it in my shop, in my grocery store, does that mean it doesn't work anymore, that nothing you're telling us is relevant? No, it does work because the spices they use in these studies are not the single origin ones. You know, they use just the ones you can find regularly. So it's not that they don't work. It's just that they probably have less potency, I would say. You can tell even from as a chef, when you smell the bottle, you can tell the difference. There's just less sort of aroma coming out of a bottle from, you know, a, a two-year-old spice. One way around it is to buy the whole spice. And again, this may overcomplicate it for people, but if you are going to use cumin, if you buy the whole cumin seed, dry toasted gently in a skillet and just blitz it in a coffee grinder that you've sort of dedicated to spices, it's $20, that can be your spice grinder, you're going to have much more preservation of those polyphenols in the whole spice than in the ground spice. So that's one way around, you know, not having to go to the artisanal spice source. I will say that some of these single origin spices are more expensive, but you don't use that much spice. You can get away with less amounts. And it's kind of like investing in a good bottle of olive oil because you really want those polyphenols. You know, we don't sort of think twice about that, but somehow we're like, we don't want to spend, I don't know, 10 bucks on a really nice jar of turmeric. We'd rather get the $2.99 version. I'm thinking of US dollars here. But yeah, so I think it's like sometimes we just have to challenge some of these preconceived notions we have about what is worth spending on and what isn't. And I'm biased, but I think it's worth getting a really nice, high quality turmeric to make magic in your kitchen. 
I think whenever we speak to someone who's an expert in a particular area, then they, they of course always see the difference, right, between what you get from the grocery store and high end. But I think the positive message you're saying is because obviously lots of people, you know, particularly at the moment, right, are really conscious of cost of living, that actually the stuff that I can get from the grocery store is really matching up to these studies you're describing. And so actually I should feel I can access this as an entry point. And then if I become addicted to turmeric in the way you're describing, that many of the, our listeners are to coffee, then they're going to be sort of escalated up this pathway. Absolutely. Yeah. I wouldn't give the impression that they're expensive, Jonathan. I think most of these spices are one of the cheapest things that you pay for in a sort of weekly budget because they do last a long time. Because we use so little and they last for so long. They last a long time. So relative to the whole family budget, they're, they're pretty trivial unless you're going for some exotic saffron that you want to get from a particular area of Spain. And be aware, because actually there is fraud at that top end, like in the vanilla market and the saffron market, you will get some fraud. But generally, most of these spices are pretty good value and cheap, I think, at the moment. So spending just, you know, uh, 50% more can get you a, a lot of advantages. And final question on this, what about storage? So I, I've bought this. Many people have heard that, you know, these expire after a certain amount of time. If I don't use it all up in a week, because I'm not yet quite as heavy on the spices, maybe I should be. What do I do? Best way to store them is away from heat and light in airtight containers because these compounds interact with the elements and will lose potency over time. So keep them in a drawer or a cupboard away from heat and light. Don't keep them right next to your stove, maybe one cupboard or drawer removed from your stove. But I like to tell people to put them in a place where they're easily accessible so you will actually use them. And just one quick point is around sourcing is heavy metal contamination. So there was a recent report that looked at heavy metals in a bunch of spices and herbs and did find in some brands worrying levels of heavy metals. We're going to have some heavy metals in everything because unfortunately that's the nature of our soil. But you can always write to the manufacturer and just make sure that they have tested and it's sort of below the the sort of danger zone of heavy metal levels. Amazing. Well, I have so many more questions that I would like to ask, but unfortunately, we have hit time. I would love to try and do a, a quick summary of what was a lot of different places. And I think also really fantastically actionable in terms of people listening to this. And, and I am going to be going away and discussing with the family a whole bunch of changes to our diet. So I think first thing is, you guys both really believe that spices can affect our health. And that's because it's full of these polyphenols. It feeds our microbes. And this seems to be the primary way in which this might be affecting us. I think we got a magic list of five spices, Kanchan, from you. And then I, I think final thing about sort of storage is, you know, again, you can keep this for quite a long time. You want to keep it away from heat and light. But basically, actually, I think you're painting a picture just to conclude that this is not that hard, that maybe many of us, and I think my included, are maybe a bit scared about a lot of this. We can go and do this easily. And maybe we start with this magic blend and then we explore all the wonderful places. And we will, uh, we will also share some in the show notes, some links to some of the wonderful things that Kanchan cooks. Yes, that's an amazing summary. It was wonderful to do this. I think there's all sorts of exciting future studies to look at some of these spices in more detail. Do you think we might have more to talk about in a year or two in this area? Yeah, I'd love to do some mass intervention studies where everyone takes a spice mix for uh, a couple of weeks on their main meals and see what those effects are. I think, uh, yeah, it could be life-changing for many people. Would you like to be involved in that, Kanchan? Absolutely. Count me in. 
All right, you heard it here first, and we will figure out if we can make that happen, because I think one of the things we know is for many of these problems, there's just not enough people, right, who've been involved in these studies. There's just not enough scale uh, to understand it. So I think that'd be incredibly exciting, and maybe there'll be some listeners who who are excited to participate. Kanchan, Tim, thank you so much. I really enjoyed that and look forward to speaking again soon. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Kanchan and Tim, for joining me on Zoe Science and Nutrition today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review. We do really read all your reviews and try and learn from them. If this episode left you with any questions, please send them in on Instagram or on Facebook, and we'll try to answer them in a future episode. At Zoe, we want to improve the health of millions by understanding the right food for each of us to improve our health and manage our weight. Each member starts with an at-home test, comparing them with participants in the world's largest nutrition science study. If you're interested in learning more about Zoe, you can head to joinzoe.com podcast and get 10% off your personalized nutrition program. You'll also find there links to everything we've discussed today and the magic varieties of spices that will hopefully make all of us healthier. As always, I'm your host, Jonathan Wolfe. Zoe Science and Nutrition is produced by Fascinate Productions with support from Sharon Feder and Alex Jones here at Zoe. See you next time.